The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose their places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you, sorry, Luke 7, 14, verse 7. Did I not say that? Okay. <laughs> and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the, servants, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house came, became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Abby. Good morning, guys. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to share God's word with you this morning. If you're visiting, uh, as Abby said earlier, welcome. We're thankful that you're here. Um, we're nearing the end of our spring series on renewal. We spent the, the last several weeks looking at how God has kind of been inviting us to consider how he revitalizes and renews broken people, both individually and corporately as a body. Our history uh, over the last 15 years as a church has been difficult and painful often. We've lost a lot of folks who've called CB their home for decades. And so the current leadership, the staff and elders and leaders, 
have been asking ourselves hard questions. What's going on? What is God doing? Why has this happened, and what is God up to right now in in this stage in the life of our church? And those are hard questions to ask. They're even harder to answer. And even harder still is receiving those answers and listening to what God has to say to those answers when he answers those questions. And what seems undeniably true is that God is moving in the American church in a unique way right now. God is allowing churches all over the country, many of which who were once prominent staples of worship, of Christian community, he's allowing these places, like CB, to be pruned. God is pruning his church. To prune something is to trim a tree or a shrub or a bush by cutting away dead or overgrown branches or stems so that fruitfulness increases and growth takes place. The continual decline of church attenders and the number of churches whose doors have been closing in the last decade throughout the American church makes certain that God is allowing his bride, the church, to go through a difficult season of pruning so that when he's done trimming the dead and overgrown areas, new, fresh, vibrant life will emerge. There's been some pruning at Central Bible, I think, over the last many years. And one of the things that we wanted to capture in this season of pruning, first off, we want to embrace it. It's okay to talk about God doing that work. It sucks. It's hard. But we need to embrace it. So first, we embrace that that's what he's doing. And secondly, we remember that pruning is not only allowing his church to decrease in number, but that often the pruning that God truly delights in is the pruning that is really hard and really painful, but that leads to new life and growth, and that is the pruning that the Holy Spirit does in those who remain faithful to his church. That's the pruning that's really tough because he's trimming the fat and cutting off the dead and overgrown areas in our hearts as we remain at Central Bible. And we as a, as a team have often commented on the reality that we have um, 130 of the most faithful, committed folks you could possibly have at a church. And we really mean that. If you are here and you've been here over the last 15 years or so through this different change and difficulty, um, there's not much that's going to scare you off, I think, at this point. And we just want you to know that we love you. And if you've remained faithful in this body through that particular season, these last 15 years or more, we really are so grateful for you. We love you so much. For some of you, it's been easier to remain faithful than for others. Some of you feel like, this is my church, why would I leave? You know, it's that simple. And we thank God for that. For others, it's been much more of a struggle to remain committed after so many heartaches. All of the men and women who help lead this body thank God for you as well. There's a worship song that has come to mind for me as I think about, you know, coming on staff here in the last couple of months and being, you know, I, the other day I... I think I referred to myself as a pastor for the first time, and that was, like, so weird. Um, But as I think about 
what it means to pastor, to shepherd God's flock, that they would come to know him in more vibrant and full ways and be able to give to others what they've been given. Um, this song that, that's come to mind has to do with um, seasons of winter and seasons of harvest. And I would just want to read um, just a, a couple of lines from the song. He says, I can see the promise. I can see the future. You're the God of seasons, and I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise even in the winter because you're the God of greatness even in a manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. I believe that God is pruning us and doing a work on us and preparing Central Bible Church for a season of harvest. He is on the move, you guys. There are so many accounts of God's Spirit breaking out in new and powerful ways after long seasons of pruning throughout the American church. We sense God doing something here, too. Do you believe that? Amen. We sense Him doing it throughout the other churches in our city, in our state, in our country. God is on the move, and He's inviting us to join Him in what He's doing. We don't have to manufacture something. He just asks us to join him in what he's already doing and what he's up to. So renewal starts with each one of us sincerely seeking God's presence to wonder how he's pruning me, how he's pruning you. And that's why this series started with the, the personal renewal, asking those why questions. Then we transitioned into discussing corporate renewal these last few weeks, asking ourselves, what are some healthy markers of a renewed community? Things like trust and vulnerability. There are people who affirm one another, who know how to rest well. And these final two sermons, today and next week on renewal, are going to be looking beyond our own community here at CB. The progression of renewal is that it begins with the individual, and then it moves into the body, and then it culminates in the community outside the walls of the church as unbelievers begin to receive spiritual renewal as they meet and follow Jesus for the first time. That's what this is working towards. God gives us what he gives us, his goodness, his grace, his love, and his mercy, not so that it ends on us. It is always meant to be given away to others. Is that right? By the way, this is always how God prunes the church and how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It's so that we can give to others what he's given to us. Our growth in Christ-likeness is always meant to be given away, not to be held tightly for ourselves, so that we can welcome others into the same presence that we experience. And there's no greater gift that we could possibly possess and no greater calling than any one of us has. You can accomplish incredible things in your vocation. 
You can experience unbelievable success in your pursuits, but none of that can touch seeing someone who is far from God meet Jesus. There's just nothing that comes close. That is the greatest end any of us could have, to give to someone else what we have. So this week and next week's sermons then are about the renewal of our city. How the Holy Spirit wants to bring conviction and growth and presence to the church so that she has good news to bring to her neighbors, to her coworkers, to the poor, to the downcast, to the forgotten. And those people tend to be in the streets out there outside these walls. Now, truth be told, I spent most of my prep time this week studying passages on the Holy Spirit in John 14. And I can tell you that it was like hitting a, a, a brick wall um, that I could not break through. Just commentary after commentary. And this happens occasionally in sermon prep. It's like writer's block. I was particularly surprised by this because I hadn't procrastinated or been lazy. I had been on top of it in my study and prep. And yet I just felt like I could not get anywhere. Praying, asking God, God, what, show me, what, are we, what am I doing? Like, I read commentary after commentary that just wanted to debate different views on what the Spirit does. Did God and the Son send the Spirit, or was it just the Father? And, and it was just maddening. <laughs> All of these brilliant minds who've poured thousands of hours into the Scriptures, and none of them could talk about what the Holy Spirit does and how we relate to Him. Now, I know there are other books out there, but the five commentaries that I read through exhaustively didn't help. Lucky for me, though, there was a Holy Spirit conference in the city these last two nights, Friday and Saturday night, that I got to attend, along with several other leaders here at CB. Raise your hand if you were at one of the two nights. Probably about eight or nine of us. Um, it was really special. First off, just to see hundreds and hundreds of young people, in their, primarily in their 20s, passionately worshiping Jesus, taking hours out of their Friday and Saturday night to come and worship Jesus, to understand and learn about the role of the Holy Spirit, that will encourage your soul. It was good for us just to see that. As I listened to the speaker during one of the sessions, he spoke about how the work of the Holy Spirit is not to give believers better church services, but to transform the hearts of those in the city. Let me say that again. The role of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to give us better church services, but to transform the hearts of those outside these walls throughout the city. The Holy Spirit wants to change and renew the brokenhearted. And the speaker referenced several passages of Jesus' healings in the Gospel of Matthew. And he noted that Jesus always healed as they were going. As they were going, Jesus encountered, be healed, and they were healed. See, and they saw. Hear, and they heard. Always as they were going. In other words, Jesus loved to seek out those who needed healing in the streets, out there. God's heart is always for those who are far from him. As the speaker of the conference talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, 
moving throughout the streets and the towns and the cities that Jesus walked through, God brought to mind uh, this passage that Abby read this morning, Luke 14. And this comes from a sermon that I preached years ago to um, inmates at Clackamas County Jail. And I believe that, you know, as I sat at this conference and was just recognizing, man, I'm not getting anywhere in my sermon prep, what's going on, what's going on, just really trying to engage the Spirit, God, show me what, what, what should we do, this, this just came to mind. And so this is what I'm going to share with you this morning, is this message that I preached a few years ago to inmates. I've adjusted it slightly, but I think God has something for us in it, Okay. So, will you just join me real quick? Will you extend your hands forward? We just, we're doing this as a physical sign of our heart's posture to invite God to speak to us, okay? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and illuminate our hearts and our minds to see and hear a little bit more about who you are and what you're like. Jesus, would you show us your unbelievable compassion for the lost and the poor, those outside these walls, that we would become a people who are personally, as individuals, renewed, corporately renewed, and that we would be able to bring that renewal to the city, particularly to Montevilla. That your kingdom would come in Montevilla as it is in heaven. Would you let it be, Jesus? Help us now. We love you. Amen. All right, so Luke 14. I'm going to read the, the first few verses there, uh, 7 through 11. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. So Jesus, first off, he's at a at a banquet that he was invited to by a very prominent uh, religious leader, a Pharisee. Um, so, of course, he, he gets the idea I should tell some stories about some banquets. So he's telling a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, both, will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When people went to parties during this time, they sat themselves relationally. We don't have the same connection to that these days, but many of us understand, we still kind of understand what this is like, right? You have the host sitting at the, the, the place of honor, and then depending on how well you were connected to the host relationally, you would sit closer or farther based on your, your relational capital with the host. And so it was protocol to always choose a seat further away because you never knew who was going to come. You didn't know who was going to show up. There were no Facebook invites where you could check maybe, right, and wait and see if something else better came up. So you didn't know who was going to go. You couldn't see who was invited. And so 
this is no different than when we've gone to a, you've gone to a wedding. And if you go with somebody that you're invited by to come to the wedding, like you're their date, right? Depending on how well that person knows the bride or groom is probably how close or far you're going to sit uh, closer to the altar. But if you, if you come to a wedding and you, you and your friend or whoever you're going with aren't super connected to the bride or groom, you're probably not going to sit right behind the groom's family, right? That's just prob- you're probably going to sit further back. So this, this is the same idea. Now, Jesus is describing something that everyone already knew, right? This idea of how we sit based on our relationship. But he's using it to illustrate this profound, profound principle, which is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this principle is a huge theme in the Bible. Uh, and it contradicts the values of our culture, right? It flies right in the face of the values of our culture. We operate on the exact opposite principle, Humble, get real. To be exalted, you have to get yours. You have to be arrogant, maybe, conniving. You have to do what it takes to get ahead, right? It's, it's look out for number one, which is you. Worry about yourself and getting ahead before you think about someone else. So what's Jesus' point in bringing this up? I think he's highlighting a couple of things. First, that the humble person has a better chance of experiencing the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that later. Secondly, though, the person who worries that he won't be accepted by others will, in fact, not be accepted by others. Let me say that again. The person who most worries that they won't be received and welcomed and accepted by others probably won't be accepted by others. C.S. Lewis says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And this is Jesus' point. The humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. He's saying that if you move into relationships after affirmation and acceptance, that's why you pursue those relationships so that you can be affirmed and accepted. If those are the primary reasons that you get into relationships because you need the affirmation, the more that you do that, the less likely you are to actually receive the affirmation you so badly desire. The more likely that you might be rejected. But if you get into relationships so that you can love the other person for their sake, not for your own, so that you can serve and care for. You don't care if you get their affirmation or acceptance. You're more likely to receive that affirmation and acceptance from them. If you fear being an outsider, you'll always be an outsider. If your value and sense of self-worth is dictated on whether you're getting to sit closer or farther from the head honcho, you'll always feel disappointed. But the moment that you can forget yourself, get your eyes off of what you need, to to love for the sake of the other, the moment that you can begin to do that, you then start to be accepted and welcomed by others. One of the things that I feel God has been asking me lately, a question that's just recurring in my mind, that I feel like the Holy Spirit is asking me is, 
Andrew, are you okay with not being known? As I continue to move throughout Portland and change the city, and I move throughout the neighborhoods and the businesses and the streets, are you okay not receiving credit for what I'm going to do? Do you truly believe it's better for my spirit to break out and move mightily regardless of whether or not you're visible and you receive any credit for what I do? I think that's something for each of us to consider too. Is it enough for God to move in our church and in Montevilla regardless of your involvement in that process? Can we be happy simply to see others come to know him and experience new life to be renewed or do we have to be seen and a part and involved in that now God is going to use us for sure but can we truly be okay with being decreased so that he can be increased look at verses 12 13 and 14 Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It sounds good. It's hard to digest, though, I think, if we're really honest. Does he really mean that? I think he does. The society that Jesus lived in during this time was very different than ours, obviously. He did not live in a democracy. It was a hierarchical society which means that everything was kind of from the top-down authority structure. There was a ranking system of people in place based on influence and prominence. In order to get something done in the community, you didn't go on a campaign trail or picket and try to get other people to vote for the person you want because they're going to enact the change that you think is best. If you wanted to get something done, you had to meet and become friends with someone who was higher up in the structure than you were. There was no Facebook. There was no phones. It was one-on-one relational interaction. And the people who were high up were willing to make these kinds of relational connections with those below them so long as they could return the favor. Right? It was always a transactional relationship. What can I give so that you will give back? And I'm going to get just as much in return. So how did this all happen? I mean, literally, how did they have these kinds of conversations or interactions? It was through hospitality. It was through eating meals together. Through inviting people into your home, into your space. That's how you extended favors. That's how you gained new alliances, new power, etc. It all happened through inviting people into your space. The guests in your home would then go on to reciprocate and invite you over so that you could have those same favors and alliances and power. 
So you only went into someone else's home or had people in your own home outside of your family if there was some sort of transaction taking place. Now, when Jesus makes the statement, don't invite friends, family, neighbors into your home, he's totally trashing the way that the society worked relationally. Jesus is not being literal here when he says, don't invite your friends or family over. He's exaggerating to make a point. Later on in the book, he also says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. Is that true? Does Jesus really mean we have to hate our families? No, he's using exaggeration to make a point, isn't he? When he says you have to hate your father and mother in order to be a follower of Christ, what he means is that your love for them in comparison to your love for him should look like hatred. It should look, it should pale in comparison. The, the deep love that you have for Christ, the devotion that you have with him, for him, in him, should look, make the relationships that you have outside of him look almost non-existent. So, you invite people into your home who cannot pay you back. That's what Jesus says. Who can't return the favor. And that's what Jesus wants us to get. Welcome people who can't return the favor into your home, into your, your space. And what is that space, right? What does the home represent? It's a place that you can truly live and be happy and be known. Home is a, is a shelter from the stormy blast of life at times. Home is a place where you can recharge your batteries, where you're rejuvenated. Home is the place where rather than being drained, you're restored. Therefore, home is, is a place of nourishment, or at least it ought to be, right? A place of nourishment and warmth, rest, good food, beauty, order. When you're outside of your home, it's cold. When you're in here, it's warm. Out there, you're working and you're tired. In here, you can rest and relax. Out there, things are not the way you want them to be. In here, things are okay. Jesus seems to be inviting us to invite others into that place, that place of warmth, of peace. It's not just a physical place, is it? It's a place, it's a presence. It's his presence, inviting others into that warmth and peace and rest. That's what Jesus wants for us. When I was in junior high, I had a good friend of mine, Travis, and he had like, I want to say four or five brothers. And these, all these kids were wrestlers, um, very rambunctious. And uh, all all boys, I think five boys total, all extremely energetic. And the mom, Joanne, his mom, <clears throat> um, I, I wish you could see her. Uh, strange woman. <laughs> she had to be to deal with all these crazy kids. Um, she was loud, kind of bombastic, and loved Jesus, but just odd. Um, and Joanne was more in tune with the Holy Spirit. As I look back, I, I can see this, but I couldn't see it then at all. But she, she was more in tune with the Holy Spirit than many of the pastors that I've 
been shepherded by. There was a desire, a deep longing to see people far from God experience the warmth and goodness of his presence. Joanne was the woman who, you know, when I moved to California, I I was born in Iowa. When I was 11, we moved to California, my mom and I, and I grew up without a dad. And my grandparents agreed to help us move. My mom and I weren't well off, and they paid for us to move out to California. And one of the stipulations was that you would have to go to church with us for a year or so. Um, And my mom agreed reluctantly. She had grown up having to go to church three times a week and didn't really want a whole lot to do with it anymore. But the pain of staying in Iowa outweighed the pain of having to move and go to church. And so, by God's grace, you know, we, we, went, we started going to church. And once we uh, li- lived in our own apartment, because we lived with my grandparents for six months or so, once we moved out and we were in our own place, um, my mom stopped going to church. You know, wasn't surprising. But I had gotten fairly connected to a youth group there and made some friends and had some good relationships. And my mom gave me a ride for a while. And then after a while, she just kind of, she didn't say no, but it was kind of like, you need to find a way to go, (laughs) you know? And so here's Joanne, my friend's mom, with a Chevy Astro van, driving around like a crazy woman, picking up all of these kids, these broken kids, different broken homes and families. Let's go. Hop in. We're going to youth group. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I mean, it would just, and we'd be blasting DC talk, supernatural, and screaming it. And she'd have us over to her house all the time with all these boys. This woman knew the Holy Spirit. She didn't care how things looked. Her home was messy, but it was warm. There was a presence of peace. I remember sleepovers where one night she she said to me, Andrew, even though your daddy isn't around, you're going to be a good daddy to your kids. You'll be a good dad to to your little one someday. She said, she told me once, She's a, just a prophetic woman. She just told me once, you know, you're going you're gonna to pastor people. You're going to love people. You have that kind of heart. And I heard it at the time and just thought, you know, maybe, I don't know. You're kind of crazy. <laughs> Not anymore. She knew God was using her because she was open to what the Spirit wanted what the Spirit was doing. She spoke life over me, and she welcomed me into his presence often. I thank God for her. All right, let's look at the last section. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, so he's hearing Jesus talk about, here's who you should invite, here's how you should be when you attend these banquets. Someone at the, at the party heard him say this, and he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, here's the story. 
A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and tend to it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, to the host. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly. Where? To the streets. To the lanes of the city. And bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, after he did that, Sir, what you've commanded is done, and there's still, there's still seats at the table. There's still room for the, <laughs> at the party. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, go out even further to the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This last section is kind of the secret to understanding this whole scene that's going on at this party. Someone says, blessed is everyone who gets to eat bread at the kingdom of God. And what this person is referring to is this final feast, this feast that we'll experience in eternity, this forever feast, the feast of all feasts, the best food, the best drink, the best laughs, the best joy. And obviously this guy thinks he's going to be there, right? Otherwise he probably wouldn't have said anything. Jesus decides he's going to tell a story. There are three different people who get invited to this, this feast that, in this parable that Jesus talks about. And they all have excuses for why they can't go. One says he's got a new plot of land to tend to, so he's probably a wealthy person. Another has some animals to take care of, and someone else just got married. That's all wonderful and great, but I want, notice this. None of these excuses are because these people are going through difficult times. These people don't go to the party not because they're unhappy, they're struggling. Actually, just the opposite. They're perfectly happy. They're accomplished. They're successful. They're wealthy. And they're also too busy for God. They're distracted and too busy to go to the feast of all feasts. So the master says to the servant, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now the master of this feast that Jesus is telling us about is frustrated because he's invited lots of successful, wealthy, accomplished people to join him at this epic meal. And they're all too busy and distracted to make it a priority. And so the master, he's not going to give up. He will not have it. He's not going to let that food go to waste, the drink go to waste. This needs to be a celebration, and people need to be here for it. So he sends his servant to the streets to find the homeless, to bring them in, the hospitals to bring in the sick, 
to the schools of the deaf and the blind and the lame. And the, the servant is to bring them, to compel them. Notice it doesn't say that the servant was to invite them. Hey, we're kind of having a, a party. Last minute we had some people cancel. If you'd like, join us. The master doesn't tell him to invite others. Compel them to come. Why? Because in this culture, as we talked about earlier, you didn't go to things like this unless you could return the favor. And the master knows that if you go and try to tell a homeless man to come and enjoy a feast during this time, he would refuse because he knew he had nothing to give in return. And so he says, compel them. Don't invite. Compel them. No, 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 no. You get to be here, and you don't have to pay us back. You, you don't have to give anything in return. That's the kind of party the master delights to have. He doesn't care about getting something in return. In fact, the people that he wants at this feast are the people who recognize they have nothing to offer. Those are the exact kinds of people that he wants because those who think they have something to offer are just too stinking busy. As we get ready to close here, just remember, think about this. Jesus was at the the greatest party that ever existed, the greatest banquet in heaven right, with the Father and the Spirit in, in relationship, perfect unity. He was in the ultimate home, the ultimate place of peace. He had a true living home of peace and presence. He had the most security living in perfect happiness and unity with the Father. He had, nothing, he had, never, he had never had to experience pain, being drained, being tired, being hurt, and yet... What does Jesus do? He leaves that. He gives it up. And he comes to earth. Now, he doesn't come to earth as a wealthy landowner, a wealthy farmer, or even a married man. None of those things happen in his life. He comes to earth, and he's welcomed into this life homeless. Homeless. The God of the universe. Homeless. He wasn't born to parents who had a, a home for him to be born into, he was born next to animals, the filth of animals. He was born in a manger, not in a home. Jesus lived on the streets those first few months of his life. He was literally raised in the ghetto. He grew up poor. He ministered in his, his years of ministry where? As they were going, out there, in the streets, in the ghettos. That's where he spent his time. Not in the comfort of his house, inviting people to to come into his home. He went out and got them. He compelled them. He died outside the city gates, not in his own home. Why did he choose this way? His life is a payment for our sin, which means that hospitality and welcoming others into the presence that we've been talking about is never easy and is costly. The only way that we could be brought into the household of God is if Jesus Christ left his place in his home so that we might be brought in 
to that place. He was forsaken on the cross. He was homeless, excluded. He left his home so that we could be welcomed in. All hospitality is expensive. It costs something. It's never easy. In the moments that we struggle to listen and obey what the Spirit is trying to do, what the Spirit is doing because it's uncomfortable, right, or it's costly, we need only to remember that Jesus' hospitality was the most expensive in history, the most radical, because he gave up the comfort of his home so that we would find a room in his house as sons and daughters. I said earlier that the more you fear being an outsider, the longer you'll remain one. Jesus is the example and the power to do this, to conquer this. When you see that the one, the one being who already had all the approval and all the acceptance, all the love that truly mattered, right, from his Father, that Jesus was willing to give all that up to come to earth to be approved by us, to be disapproved, to be hated, to be killed, We screamed, crucify him. When you see that Christ gave up all of his security and acceptance, only to be totally rejected when he was crucified on the cross for your sins, then that's the moment that we can begin to forget ourselves. And we don't have to worry about our acceptance when we know we've got the one who matters most. When you see him, then you will be able to have relationships with people, not worried about whether they'll accept and love you because you know that you've been accepted by the one who truly matters most. He forgives your debt. He welcomes you in. He accepts you. He loves you so that you can take that love and acceptance and presence and keep it for yourself. Give it away. Give it away to others. I said earlier that we're told by Jesus to welcome strangers into your living place and to treat them as family in order that some of them will become friends. To love people who can give us nothing in return. To welcome them into our home. You and I were those kinds of strangers before. We were the ones who were outcasts, who God had to say to the servant, go, compel them, bring them in. That was you and that was me. God had no reason and no benefit to start a relationship with us, but because of who he is, he did it anyway. Jesus came to earth and he died for our sin and he welcomes us into his home. And guess what? We get to do nothing in return. We have nothing to offer in return. And that's exactly how God likes it. Jesus continues his work of welcoming the stranger and the outsider and the poor and the lame by empowering you and me, his followers, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. To listen to the Spirit. What are you doing? God's already on the move. One of the things the speaker said at the Holy Spirit conference is, who does Jesus say will build his church? The pastors? The leaders? No. Jesus says he's going to build his church. He'll take care of that. He wants us to pay attention to where he's moving and what he's doing and to join him in that work. And that's what we get to do. So let's be a people who lean into God, into his spirit. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, um, I thank you that I thank you, God, that you are not always so easy to categorize and to put in theological boxes that we can check off. Holy Spirit, you're, you're different. The ways that you move are mysterious. The ways that you change people, how you prompt us to listen and to obey you, to follow you, even when it's uncomfortable and costly, it's not easy but it is good, and it is worth it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us, each one of us, as we begin to experience personal renewal, corporate renewal, that we would be bold to go out and to compel those outside of these these walls to come in for a feast like no other, to taste and know that God is good, Would you help us, Holy Spirit? We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.